Thank you very much, Malama. And thank you for your texts, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. I'll read as many as I can. Uh, we can't read them all out, but we do read them all. So thank you in advance for sending them. It's great to get your thoughts. Regarding last wishes, uh, Marcus in Wellington says, My old boss at the St James Theatre got his ashes sent up in a firework. At one stage during the show, I could have sworn I smelt his socks. And this is an interesting one from Mike W. He says, A will is an important document, but please refrain from suggesting that it should contain instructions for a funeral. The funeral is for the living. The dead have no need of this ritual and should be kept well away from its arrangements. The living attend, benefit from, and pay for the funeral. Please consider promoting the agency of the living. The dead have no place interfering in funerals, theirs or anyone else's. Cheers, Mike W. What do you make of that? Text me with uh, your thoughts on that on 2101. Regarding building a snow person, hi Karen and the panel, to be fully correct, it is a snow support animal and a snow day is a formal thing that closes schools, let it snow, Andrew says. And Bob and Kaitaya says, snowman depends on where you put the carrot. Thank you very much for that, Bob. That's the nose, isn't it? Uh, My guests today are Amy Carter, Chief Executive of the Christchurch Foundation. Hello again, Amy. Hello. And Phil Taylor, partner at law firm Tompkins Wake. You still there, Phil? Still here. Yep. yep. Excellent. Nine minutes past four, and the government is promising to reduce youth crime with a $53 million package to extend education and employment programs for more at-risk young people. And as part of the plan, children aged under 14 who are caught ram raiding in counties Monaco or West Auckland will be referred to a social well-being board to steer them away from crime. However, opposition parties have called this package window dressing, instead urging for better police support and for the government to do more to tackle truancy. With his thoughts on the package, we have community worker Dave Latelli from Brown Butterbean Motivation. Kia ora, Dave. Kia ora, how's it going? Good, thank you. Do you think these measures are going to work? Well, what I like about them is that they're they're going to invest and help to scale community groups that are already having an impact. So if they're not trying to reinvent the wheel here, um, they're going to help these groups that are already uh, having an impact on the youth at the moment. Right, so the support programs already exist. Why aren't they working? Is it simply a lack of funding? Well... When you're when you're operating on oil, the smell of an oily rag, it's it's hard to make an impact. But you you see uh, groups like Mate Huruhuru, which was there at the announcement today, which, which I was as well. You know they're having they're having a really great impact with next to nothing. So that they're going to groups like them are going to be able to scale up and have resource to help even more kids. What do they do? Uh, you know, an organisation like that. What exactly do they do? Well, they're giving kids hope and they're giving them lifestyle skills that, and basic life skills that, that they're just not being taught. You've got to understand that there's, there's parents here that uh, don't have time. They're, they're just too busy living, trying to survive. Then you've got the parents who just don't give a crap. Um, so you've got to be able to deal with, with both kids, both from both groups. You know, that, that are, um, when you're at the bottom with nothing and the only people with, that are your role models are drug dealers and gang members, what do you have to aspire to? So they take they can't take them away from the environment, obviously, because they're still children. But exactly, that's why that this program where they're investing in the I forgot the name of it, the, the wellbeing uh, program there that's uh, walking alongside these families. That's the issue here. And I spoke to a principal at the announcement today, where it's one thing what they do at school, but it's what they do when they get home. If you, you know they're still going home to the same old crap, it's hard to change. 
so that if you're working along walking alongside these families long term, not just this government, not just the next, it's all governments here to walk alongside these families, and it's long term. Um, you can't just throw heaps of money at and expect any change. This is a long term thing. I'll just go to our panelists here for a moment, Dave. Amy, if you, if you had fifty three million dollars, how would you invest in at risk young people? Yeah, I think it has to be grassroots led, and we've seen that real impact comes from the community driving this change, not from the government. Um, the government's a, a vehicle for funding; they shouldn't be delivering programs. Your own communities know where where things that can happen, and, and we see that more and more. Um, Their issue is intergenerational, and um, successive governments have failed to understand and address mm. the, the core issues, which is, you know, the people have lost hope, and, and um, we've got to start addressing that and take that seriously rather than keep applying Band-Aids whenever there's another headline that we don't like as a politician. Well, Phil, National described it as window dressing, that it doesn't address the true causes of crime. Uh, ACT, they wanted more support for police instead. What do you make of those arguments? Look, I think it's it's way more complex than, than that. And I, I would say listen to people like David. And, and David, I've got to say I'm up to Chapter 11 of your book, No Excuses, which I think you can find on Mighty Ape. It is, it, it's great what you're doing, and, and I love it, and, and uh, following you closely. Keep it up. So this particular uh, support program, which it really is, it's a, you know it's a support for support programs, if you like. Um, you think this is fifty-three million dollars is going to be enough, Dave? I mean, what would you like to see if you had a figure? Look, it's never enough, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> and I think it's I think it's a step in the right direction. Again, uh, it's it's supporting community groups that are at the grassroots level that have the trust of the families that can make this change. And it's long-term, it's, it's you know, uh, the, people always throw the choice card at me, but choice implies an equal starting point. And for a lot of these kids like myself, we couldn't even see a start line. You know, I've managed to break the cycle, but it's extremely hard. And it's even harder when you've got generations, that, as far as you can see back, that have never been anything. They've only ever known crime, alcohol abuse, fa- spousal abuse, all these things. It's, you've got to walk on these families a long time. You, you, you referenced um, Phil Dave's book and in terms of Dave turning your own life around. Uh, was that with the – well, obviously it wasn't. I haven't read the book, but with the support of your family, you had to do that outside of your family? Look, my father was the president of the Auckland chapter of the Mongol Mob. Uh, he was in jail most of my life. Um, but I was lucky that I still had a, a, a good wider family that could pluck me out of situations and give me a hand up. Uh, a lot of these kids don't have that. The only role models they have are drug dealers and gang members. So that's why these groups like Mata Huru Huru and all these and the stuff that we do in the community, where it can give hope to these kids to show them it's possible to have a nice family, to have a nice house, to have a nice car, to have a good job, and you don't have to sell drugs and do ram raids. Well, what happened to you? You know, how did you get through that? Uh, read the book. Yeah, read the book, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really I'm happy to support <laughs> it. It's Look, about, it you can't... It was extremely hard, but, you know, it, it's just a matter of just starting, being around good people and, and not letting mm. excuses stop you. But it, it's extremely hard. But, you know, it's also, you've got to, you can't be... Right? Some, yep, sorry, yeah, Amy, carry on. You, so you can't become something if you've never seen it. 
as well. I think that's really important. You've got to become something. You've got to understand what what the aspiration is. And yeah, this is it's an intergenerational issue, and it's time that we put party politics to one side and actually look at how we're going to address some of these fundamental issues because nothing has worked. You know, there's never been more generosity in the Western world than there is now, but we've never seen more harm or people at risk than we have now. Something isn't working. But the opposite to that is some would say it's a bleeding heart's handout, throw the book at them, too bad about the background to the offending, uh, and, and that could indeed be a policy. You know, that, that could be where we are heading. So in terms of that approach, where does that leave, uh, lead to, Dave? Well, look, look if, if that policy comes into play and we, and we get more and more poverty, if you think it's bad now, wait and see how bad it will get. Mm. You know, like the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely worried about the stuff that we see, and and if if, if you know, I'm worried, I'm concerned, and if we take that approach, it will only get you know a thousand times worse. Thanks very much, Dave, and I'm going to get the book. Awesome, thanks very much. <laughs> how much? How much does it cost? Oh, mate, it's it's the price of a, a cup of coffee a day. Or a day for how long? <laughs> for a week. It's, it's about 35 bucks. Not too just bad. Send me a message. And a, this, this book, right, it's, it's a how-to guide yep. of how you can turn your life around. And it's also about giving people, you know, some hope, but also to, to understand that it, it's tough for, for a lot of people. And if you can help, you should. If we all live that way, if this place, this world would be a better place to live in. Nice thoughts. What's the title of it again? No Excuses. No excuses. Dave Vitelli, thank you. Thanks, team. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Thank you. 17 minutes past four, RNZ National. This is the panel with Karen Hay. I'm filling in for Wallace Chapman this week, who's on a bit of a break, a bit of a holiday break. And the Victorian government in Australia has announced that it's going to be providing free degrees and upskilling to those uh, training to be midwives and nurses next year. And this package is going to cost them $280 million in total. The catch is, is that graduates will need to join a public health service upon completion and they have to stay for two years. Uh, should we be doing the same thing here to address staff shortages? Could we bring this policy to New Zealand? Chief Executive of the College of Midwives, Alison Eddy, is on the line. Kia ora, Alison. Kia ora, Karen. You couldn't get a better deal than this, could you? No charge for your nursing and midwife degree. You'd be all for it, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're short of midwives. It takes four years to, to educate them. Um, a number of our graduates are older. They have previous degrees or careers or they have Sano family commitments. And, you know, some of them have used their entire student loan or a big portion of their student loan allowance. And we know that um, financial hardship is the reason why we lose some. So this would be a gift if we could have a similar strategy here. Yeah, in Australia, they've obviously got problems that are parallel to this, and they've thought this is the way to do it, is actually make sure that nurses and midwives can study and they don't have to pay for it. Uh, what's the thinking that says we can't do it here? Just the money? Oh, probably, or just no one's thought of the solution. I think it would be a great um, step forward. And, I mean, interestingly, we saw post-COVID some government initiatives towards financial support for apprenticeships because we need to ensure we've got a workforce for our economy. Well, we would say we need a workforce for our health system. You know, a healthy population is the foundation of your your community and your nation. So we would like to see a similar commitment in the health sector as there has been for our, um, for our trades and industry sector. 
Do, do you have a figure, Alison, on the cost to train a midwife nowadays? How expensive it is? Uh, well, the family structure is varies. There's a few different. There's five different institutions. So probably around sort of eight to ten thousand dollars a year for the for the academic fees. But the living costs and course key course fee costs are also significant. So it's not only the cost of living, you know, rent, food, mortgage, accommodation, whatever. But the students also have course costs such as petrol. You know, their clinical placements are a big part of the program. They may have to go out outside of their um, area of residence. They have to accommodate themselves in order to access clinical placements and they do shift work or on-call work, which makes it really hard to hold down part-time work for income to, to buffer those costs as well. Is it a year's tra- training? How long is it to train to be four, a midwife? Four, four years. Sorry, four. four. Years. Okay, right. Four so, years. Yeah. so yeah. if you just a rough figure for those four years, what might it be? Oh, I mean, we have students coming out with you know tens of thousands of loan fees. You know, fifty thousand dollars, seventy thousand dollars wouldn't be unusual if they've um, been required to to put all that on the student loan throughout their program or more potentially. Phil, have you got a student loan still, or did you have one? Karen, Karen, I went on a student march against uh, student fees being brought in uh, at, at Otago University in the late 80s. Uh, luckily, I got through, but my wife got caught, and we've just paid off her uh, loan last year, so 20, over 20 years <coughs> to pay it off. Yeah. I was just going to say there was a time when they paid you to go to university with a bursary. So you were in well, on that. I was, I was lucky. I was really lucky. But I, I think last time I was on the panel, I spoke about the importance of, of education. And I think it's just a great investment by the country. It's an investment. And that's the way to look at it. And, and, and particularly the health sector at the moment. I couldn't agree more. And Alison, as a taxpayer, would you feel happy paying for a scheme like this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what we see consistently in our data is that New Zealand educated midwives, New Zealand educated health professionals are what we, we know are committed to our, our workforce. We recruit overseas health professionals some stay, but in large number don't. So we, we just, you know, we want to have our own home grown and we need to be investing in the diversity of our workforce so that we've got a workforce that looks like the service, you know, who, those who are receiving the service. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to pay taxes towards something like this. What about you, Amy? It seems an obvious answer, doesn't it? It's just the money. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think it's cyclic. You know, how when was it? I remember my auntie went through teachers' college and was bonded to to teach in New Zealand for a certain period of time. I just think we need to look at multiple tools in our toolkit to use to ensure that we we fill the skill shortage um, in the right areas where we need people. So why wouldn't we look at something like this? Well, as I said, it's the money, isn't it? You've got to persuade uh, the government that it's worth it. And given that, that we need so many nurses and midwives, it seems an obvious answer. But perhaps well, I think our health system's on its knees. The uh, health system's on our knees. Uh, um, everyone's tired and exhausted. COVID's just accentuated the, uh, the issues that it's been facing for some time. Uh, in a previous role, I worked in senior position at St John. Um, the, you know, the... There's a lot of issues, and we've relied really heavily on skilled migrants to fill that skill shortage list, and I'm very 
pro-immigration and bringing people to our country to help as well, but we can't only rely on that. We've got to have lots of, uh, lots of options up our sleeve to ensure that we fill the skill shortage, not only health system but business. If you talk to business owners, they'll tell you the biggest issue often for growing their businesses at the moment is people. Um, some other Australian states, Alison, they're not happy with this. They don't like this because they're worried that they're going to lose staff. They're going to lose staff to Victoria. They're going to move over there because the, the degree is free. So if there was any chance of having a policy like this in New Zealand, it would have to be nationwide, wouldn't it? Oh, agreed, agreed. And we are different from Australia in that we have a nationalised system, not a state-by-state system. And I think that I would absolutely strongly support a national approach to that. Um, I think that's the only the only sensible solution for us. And we would also help our staffing issues because we would have committed, you know, people committed for at least two years to stay in New Zealand after they've finished their program um, of, of study. How likely do you think it is that the government might take this up? Well, I'm sure they're very aware of the workforce issues and we, we hear that um, there's further planning and thinking going on. Um, we would just like to see some action sooner rather than later. And I think, you know, the, the announcement that came after COVID, as I just talked about earlier, for the Towards the Trade apprenticeships, it just seemed like there was just a real blind spot around the health workforce and the support that it needs to make sure that we can keep our health system functioning. Well, it's a good template, isn't it? It's a starting point to say they're doing it in Victoria. Why aren't we doing it here? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what will you be doing in terms of being the the CEO of the College of Midwives from here, now that you know this, you've seen this happen in Victoria? Um, Where can you take this? Well, we've we've been writing to the Minister quite regularly about the workforce issues, and this gives us another another possible solution that we can be putting on the table. Um, We know midwifery is one of the critical workforces nationally, and that there is some work going on at a national level about, um, you know, short, medium, long-term solutions. But to be honest, you know, we've been in this loop for such a long time. We absolutely need some very tangible solutions, and this would be one of them. Very good. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. That's Chief Executive of the College of Midwives, Alison Eddy. And uh, this text says nurses should have free training but should be bonded for a certain time after training, which is exactly what is happening in Victoria. They they uh, they have to stay for two years. Uh, they need to join a public health service upon completion of this free degree and they have to stay there for two years. Uh, and something like, Phil, when you look at the Defence Force, for example, they've got to stay there for a set amount of years for the training that they receive. So... Uh, it seems logical, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm in favour of that bonding idea. I think it's it's been used in the past. Uh, I, I haven't heard any problems with it that would prevent it being rolled out again. I think it's it just makes sense to me. RNZ National, it's 26 minutes past four on the panel. Amy Carter, Chief Executive of the Christchurch Foundation, and Phil Taylor, partner at law firm Tompkins Wake, are my guests on the panel this afternoon. And we've been having a little bit of small talk about the weather. Uh, but if I say to you it only takes four minutes, your mind could, of course, be going anywhere. But uh, four minutes of small talk, chit-chat, uh, is all you need to learn 
an awful lot about another person, whether they're introverted or extroverted. And more importantly, if you're going to have future interactions with them, you might work with them, for example, how they're going to behave in the future, all of that in four minutes. And these were the findings of a study that came out of the University of Warwick in the UK. They said, in even a few minutes, we will start to form a mental model of the person we are talking with. Are they introverted or extroverted? Do they seem upbeat or downbeat, cooperative or uncooperative? And so the takeaway from that study is that we should see small talk as useful and not a waste of time. So I'll talk with my panellists here for the small talk. Uh, <laughs> Phil, how are you in these, you know, like a social interaction, the initial social interaction? What would be your go-to opening line? Yeah, that's... That's something I do struggle with. You know, you can always go with the weather or, or, or I try and steer away from what do you do or, you know, their occupation because you just don't want to put people in a box. But I, the, the thing I most took away from the article was the last comment uh, about just be curious about someone, just be really curious. And, and one of the interesting things about small talk, I think, in most events in, in New Zealand is I find... Um, Often people don't ask any questions about you. You might you might initiate the the conversation, but 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 some a lot of people don't um, aren't, don't show that curiosity about you. Which I don't know. Maybe it says something about me. But uh, I wonder what um, <laughs> what you guys find. Yeah, that's true. That's all about them, isn't it? Yeah, I think people quite like talking about themselves and it's safe because they know the topic. But um, I, it's interesting because you do make assumptions really quickly, don't you? Even things like a handshake, to me, I make an instant assessment on a person's personality based on how they shake my hand. And, um, you know, Especially if they crush when you it. Over- when they crush yeah, it, or the like, limp-wisted oh. ones. I mean, they just—you feel like you need to wash your hand afterwards. So, um, I'm, yeah, it is interesting how you. And I suppose it goes back to the whole. Um, you know, humanity and how we assess risk. It's quite interesting to understand that in a more complex social environment. Carry on, yep. I was going to ask if you've ever had yeah. an occasion, Amy, where four minutes was four minutes too long and you've both stood oh, there yeah. saying nothing. <laughs> I'm sure we've all experienced that many times and then you're sort of trying to catch the eye of someone across the room to save you or, oh, look, uh, my phone's ringing or, oh, look at the time. Um, so I think you, it's good to have not only a few conversation starters up your sleeve, but also some smart and polite ways to exit. It's <laughs> well. excruciating, that, isn't it? It's so excruciating when that happens. But you can always sure go back to, you can always repeat, yes, it's cold, isn't it? Or it's warm, isn't it? Or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And then sometimes I think it's quite fun to ask lots of questions about someone and, and, and um, see how far they'll go and how much they'll actually tell you. That can sometimes cause a bit of an amusement as mm. well. Remain curious, mm. as, yeah. as Phil noted in the article.